So the Old Town Fair is the thing they do each year. It's on Saturday, and they've asked us to have a booth there for the church. Um, I started out when you were talking with Barbara. Yeah, and, uh, and Christine. Oh, I won't interrupt you now. Gotcha. And then I went looking for you. <laughs> but here you are. Good. I, yeah. I didn't know what that yeah. was. Yeah, you got it. Doug, are you going to need this? So what I'll do is... I'll, I'll, you want to trade you? Or have you got notes in here? Oh, no. I don't have any notes. Perfect. There you go. Yep. So this was what I was going to, to pray about, but you can pray what Okay. Yep.
Good morning. Hate to interrupt, but since it is time to start the service, I hope and pray that you'll join me. We've got a couple of announcements. Um, new schedule for Sunday school in the Billings Room. We had our first one this morning, and weekly hereafter, it starts at 9. Come join us. We had fun this morning. We had to set up a few more chairs. So we look forward to setting up a few more chairs. Bible studies are starting and continuing in great time to jump in. I think a week from this Tuesday, the ladies' Bible study gets started. Find one, join it. They're wonderful and great. There's a men's on Wednesday morning at 6. The Historical Society is having the old-time fair out and back of the Historical Society this coming Saturday, and those of the COT team and the event of the tent in the green have been asked to participate in that old-time country fair. So any others that have the urge, bored on Saturday, join in. September prayer letter is out. You can't hear me, Tom? That better? Okay. I don't like swallowing this, but if I need to, I can get up there where you can hear me. Thank you very much, Tom. Without any further to do, Jonathan, play the prelude, please. Thank you. Read Psalm 34 for the call to worship. Will you all please rise as I read it? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What a privilege we have, dear God, that you have brought us together for the privilege to worship you. May we do it in a manner this morning that honors you and glorifies your name and draws us closer to you to be prepared for the hour after the service as well as through the sermon that we would hear that which you would desire. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And will you stay standing and join with me the exaltation, num hymn number one, All People That On Earth Do Dwell.
And you may be seated. <clears throat> and thank you, Jonathan. That last verse played as loud as it was, just, I think, should have woke any of us up that were dazing whatsoever. We thank you. Scriptural call to repentance, and after that, the prayer of collective confession. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And together with me, if you will read the prayer of collective confession, and then I will pause a moment or two for that to dwell in our minds and thoughts as our own confession. Join in with me, please. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of our youth or our transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us. For your goodness' sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon our guilt, for it is great. Turn to us and be gracious to us, for we are lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of our hearts and bring us out of our distress. Consider our affliction and our trouble and forgive all of our sins. The proclamation of forgiveness from Colossians 2, 13 to 14. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. We'll have the deacon's offering taken from the rear to the front of the church. So 
Father, we thank you for these blessings, the wonders of the hand that you have upon us, this place in which many bring their offerings to us, and we can collect it for the work of this church here in Woodstock in the Upper Valley. We thank you for the wonders of your care and your love for us, and we are for up these offerings in the richness of proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ in this area. And we pray, amen, in Jesus' name. Will you bow with me? Dear God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, creator of all things. The wonder that we have been brought to Christ to be ambassadors in this place to our neighbors, our family and friends we have a truth to express we're sinners and we pray Father that as each one of us confesses our sins we would do it in sincerity as individuals and as a body we pray that not only would we confess our sins but even seek forgiveness from those that we may have spoken to that we may have been harsh with or that we may have been belligerent or arrogant we know that you Lord have brought us into a place the body of Christ here at FCCW conditioning us for the bride your bride for Jesus Christ we thank you that we can be considered for that all because of what you Jesus have done for us so as we live out the truth from your word that you have preserved over the many years. May we share it with our neighbors, our family, and our friends, much like the ransoms are doing in Italy, to conduct our life and our walk in such a way that we are prepared to give a testimony for the wonder of the life that you've given to us. Father, may we lift up our government in this country and in this state that you would indeed lead them draw them Father if there are many that know not Christ as Lord and Savior might it be the office that they're in be that office which you would draw them to know Christ and those that love you and praise you may they be faithful as they lead both our country and our state Father, we think of the leaders in this place, the elders and the deacons, 
Grow us stronger with one another, Father. Help us to be clear as to who it is we serve, walking with you as children of yours, servants of one another, the children in this place, the mothers and the dads, Father. We thank you for it's part of your creation, family, and help us to understand that as we grow. And Father, we thank you for the richness of your word to be preached to us, that it's not just for ears that know nothing or have not heard you, but that you, Holy Spirit, would liven each one of us to listen, to take home anything from the word preached that's true about who you are and who we are. Give to our Pastor Doug the blessing of your Holy Spirit to speak out these truths in each of us as we sit in a pew to participate. We thank you for the wonders of bringing us into worship, to worship you in spirit and in truth, for as Jesus expressed to Pilate when Pilate asked, what is truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man will come to the Father except through Christ. So we pray as we continue in this worship service and leave this place that we would be the ambassadors that you, Lord Jesus, desire us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Affirmation of Faith, Elder Christian, what do you believe concerning God the Father? Congregation. What do you believe concerning Jesus? Christian, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit and his work? Amen. And will you please rise and sing with me the doxology 731. <laughs>
please remain standing as I read the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15:42 to 58. So is it with res- resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual. It is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And remain standing to sing, O hymn of glory, let us sing.
And you may be seated. That phrase or that word, hallelujah, is transliterated from the Hebrew and means literally, let us praise Yah, Yehovah. It's the same abbreviation for the God of the Bible, Jehovah, that is used in Jesus' very name, whose name means Jehovah saves. So as we sing, hallelujah, let us praise Jesus, for he is God. Turn with me, won't you, to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 20 and 21. For those of you who may be visiting and not familiar with our preaching, we work our way through various different books of the Bible, and this year we have been working our way through the book of Philippians in the New Testament. In your uh, hymn, or in your um, pew Bible there, you'll find it on page 981 in this pew Bible in front of you. Picking up in chapter 3, reading verses 20 and 21. Hear now God's holy and errant word. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Lord God, we thank you and praise you. You indeed are the Lord, God of all things, and that your resurrection, Lord Christ, has demonstrated for all the world that you not only have power over creation and all the living, but that you have power even over death itself, and that you bring this power to us, your people, to conquer death, to defeat sin, to follow you with wholehearted joy and gladness. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to enable, empower, and embolden us in this truth, that by the resurrection power of Jesus we live. For it's in that great name we pray now. Amen. My college roommate, Kelly Murphy, grew up with a single mom. His dad had had left and his twin brother, Kevin. And Kelly and Kevin were big boys. I mean, they were the the ones that that the football coach and wrestling coach was thrilled to have on, on his team. But his mom, working as hard as she could, had a hard time just feeding two such mammoth boys. And so often, after buying groceries, she didn't have money for rent. And so they they tended to move around from trailer park to trailer park, never having a real home for very long. I'll never forget going with Kelly to a retreat. We were involved in the college ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and 
were having this this retreat, and a bunch of us gathered together in this palatial home. It was this gorgeous home that they rented out for special events and, and things like that. And and I remember Kelly's eyes being gigantic as he looked at all these things. But it wasn't it wasn't so much the the wealth or the the nice bit about the home, is they gave a an introduction and a history of the home and and they mentioned that this particular home had been in this family for generations. And I could see Kelly just being absolutely astounded that not only did a family have a home, but one that passed on had that security, had that rootedness. And so Kelly very much made it his goal to work hard and to get to the place where he could have a home for his family. He married one of the gals there in in college, and then we had the, the great joy years later of going and visiting them with their brand new twins in the home that God had enabled them to purchase. Now, this shows us a lot about what our passage is dealing with, but let me be clear. I'm not in any way trying to equate the American dream, you know, that you'd have a home and picket fence and all those nice trappings with the kingdom of God. But I am asking you to consider that some of our drive, some of our longing for that kind of rootedness is because of the reality of the kingdom of God. And that our Savior not only came and saved us out of our sin, he didn't just take care of our moral problem of disobedience, but he came promising his disciples that he would go and prepare a place for us. And he used that imagery of a a suitor, a man trying to win a young lady to become his bride, that in that day and age in ancient Near Eastern culture, that was typically what would happen is, is that the man, young man would propose, ask for the, man, the, the dad's blessing, and then he would go back to his own folks house and build on an extra room to the family home. And that when he was done and ready to welcome his bride, then he would go and they would get married and come home to the place that he would build. This is the the image that Jesus uses and that he uses throughout the scripture, even before Christ came. This is what we were seeing in the adult Sunday school class of the place of home, of dwelling together with God, of being with him and knowing him, him being our God and we being his people that runs throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so it is this piece that that the Holy Spirit is using in Paul writing to the church there in Philippi, that he talks about their walk with Christ, as we saw last week, but not just their walk, but their permanency, their being home with God. And he uses the term here of citizenship. So I want to unpack what these two verses have for us and then seek to apply that in our daily lives. In your order of worship, you'll find an outline where I give you a couple of the kind of place markers throughout the text as we'll look at it together. 
The first thing is, is that even now we are rooted in our glorious future. There's this future reality that Christ has for us, but even now we're connected to, we're rooted in that reality. Second, that Christ will glorify our bodies with his resurrected power. And then third, for us to wrestle through, are we living today in the certainty of this reality? So let's look at each one of these in turn. First, even now we're rooted in our glorious future. We see this primarily in verse 20. He starts with but. A a signal for us that he's contrasting what he's saying now, that our citizenship... Our citizenship is in heaven with what has just gone before. Our citizenship, he says, contrasting what we have with what he's just talked about. What he's just talked about is that those who have their minds set on earthly things, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, those who are not seeking Christ and his kingdom. Unlike them who set their minds on earthly things, he says, Our citizenship is not here on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. This contrast continues as he's been building all throughout chapter 3 of Philippians between those who follow Christ and those who don't. And unlike what much of the world thinks is true of the church and what we believe that Christians are those who are doing better than their evil, wicked neighbors. That's not at all what we believe. The scripture teaches us that we are all sinful and that it is only by God's grace that any of us would seek him at all. But God, in his incredible grace, has worked in us and enabled us to hear the gospel the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, so that we then might act on the gift that he gives us of faith to believe that and step out in faith to follow him. And so he's been talking about all the ways that this reality of our faith in Christ should show up in our actual behavior, in what we do, in how we live. And of course, this is the the main thing that drives everybody's hatred of hypocrisy. This, the, the people out there are not just the ones who hate hypocrisy. That When they see it in the church and they say, you guys say one thing, but you do another. No, we hate it too. That, that's not what we're supposed to do. Everybody dislikes somebody saying one thing and doing another. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. The difference is we, by God's grace, understand that we're incapable of changing that on our own. That no self-help book, that no program, that no amount of us trying will change that in us. But praise be to God, God himself has come to change us. And so part of what this passage is working through is how our hope for what Christ is going to do to come back for us is a tool that God uses to change us, to transform us. And the reality of that ultimate transformation in heaven is what we are borrowing now. We realize that's what 
is to come, and so we're going to live like that now. And that's what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven. Notice, in talking about this citizenship, this reality of how we have been uh, dedicated to Christ's kingdom, that our belonging to God's people is not a future tense verb. Our citizenship is right now in heaven. He's going to talk about things that we're waiting for, things that will happen, but when he talks about our citizenship in heaven, he talks about that as a present reality. We are now, he is saying, even citizens in heaven. That Jesus is the king who has reconciled us with his father and brought us into his family. As those who have been adopted by the king, we are citizens of that kingdom. We are made partakers. We are in Christ by faith. And as a result, we have all of the duties and responsibilities, but also all of the benefits of being in the king's kingdom. This citizenship language helps in describing the reality that we have now in a permanence with certainty. We have this citizenship. It's it's not willy-nilly. We can't be told, well, you don't have that citizenship anymore. It's not just that I am a guest here, but that I am part of this kingdom. That in Christ, because of his righteousness, because of his work of holiness, because of his sacrifice on on my behalf, I am made a citizenship of this king's kingdom. And so that ought to affect everything. Like how I talk to the king in prayer. Like wanting to do the king's bidding. In everything that we're doing, it is to flow out of that citizenship rather than me thinking in terms of being on probation. And if you if you do enough good stuff, then maybe the king will let you in. No. He's saying you have the citizenship now in God's kingdom now based on what Christ has done. And he says, we have this citizenship that belongs in heaven. We're a citizen citizen of heaven, God's kingdom. And from it, that is from heaven, something is going to come. We are awaiting this thing to come, not from earth, but from heaven. From it, we await a savior. Now, this is part of our confession that we need saving that we on our own are not able to save ourselves. There's no amount of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. There's no amount of us trying harder that can make us to be what Christ has already made us to be in his life, death, and resurrection. And we need a Savior because we've rebelled against God. That's not just something that Adam and Eve did, but that's something that we're born into and happily go along with. I know a lot of times in talking about Adam and Eve's sin and how that plunged the whole earth into what we call the fall, people say, whoa, 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 
That doesn't seem fair. I wasn't there. I didn't have any part in that. And yet what we find is, is that we joyfully enter into the same rebellion that they did. It's not a hypothetical, well, if you were there, you would have sinned. No, I know you sin because I see you sinning. I know that I sin because I see me sinning. You can see me sinning. We all know that this is true, and yet we constantly act like, no, no, no. I mean, he made some mistakes. Well, yeah, that was unwise. No, let's call it for what it is. I did what I knew I wasn't supposed to do. And the scripture goes on to say that I did it not as a lapse, but because my heart is deceitful and wicked. That I want what I want when I want it. And I don't care what God thinks about that. Just me in my unvarnished flesh and sin, that's where I am 24-7. And it's only by God's grace and his work in me through the Holy Spirit that makes me realize, no, that will always lead to death destruction, heartache. But Christ has come and provides another way. We await from this heaven a Savior. And then he goes on to name him. We're not just, we're not just awaiting a generic Savior. This isn't simply a, a philosophical pursuit where we think, well, if, if the world is this bad off, there's got to be a Savior out there somewhere, right? No, he names him specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls him the Lord. Not a Lord, not one of many, not a powerful person, but Lord, the sovereign over all things. And you'll remember back in chapter 2 where he's talking about Jesus and what he's done and how God... The Father had sent the Son to accomplish this very thing, that he would be the Lord here on earth and as the ruling, reigning Lord, rescue his people out of our sin and death, out of Satan's kingdom, and bring us into his kingdom. And it tells us not only did Jesus come to do that, but he did do that. And as a result of him doing that, the Father gave him the name that is above every other name, Yahweh the Lord. And that's exactly what he's saying here. This is who our Savior is, none other than the Lord, Yahweh himself, Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus, as we saw in the hymn, means Yahweh saves. It, it's the same word in Hebrew as Joshua, like the Old Testament book, because Joshua leads his people into the promised land to there dwell with God. And his name tells everybody it's not him, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who saves. And we're left reading Joshua, longing for the ultimate Joshua who is to come, through whom Yahweh will save. He's not only the Lord, he's not only Jesus, the one whose very name means Yahweh saves, but he is the Christ. It's the same term in a different language as Messiah. The promised Messiah. The one that Yahweh will send to save his people. To rescue us 
from the dominion of Satan himself. This is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of those parts of his name conveys again and again the incredible promise and the fulfillment of that promise that we have in Jesus. And so just as he says in chapter 2, verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul here professes that same thing. This is the, the Savior for whom we await to come from heaven. And that not only has Jesus come, but this is what our minds are to be thinking. This is what our hearts are to be feeling. This is what our lives are be to, uh, to be reflecting in every moment of our day, every day of our lives. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are merely pilgrims here, but we do have a home. Our Savior is there now, and He will return for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ will take us to a home that fire cannot destroy, that rust cannot damage, that thieves cannot steal from, a home that is forever secure. And that's, that's not even all. He goes on to say what He will do, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, what He will do when He comes to take us home. That leads us to our second thing, that Christ will glorify our bodies with his resurrection power. This is what we find in verse 21. This Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will finish what he has started. He will transform our lowly body. Now this, we shift from the present tense, right? Our citizenship is now in heaven, even as we await for all of what that means to, to come. But this now is future. He will transform our lowly bodies. This future hope of transformation is not a hope that is, well, that'd be nice. It is presented as fact. That's what Christ has said. And his disciples struggled with this. When he was preparing them as they were getting ready to go to Jerusalem and he knew that he was going there to die, he kept telling them, now I'm going to Jerusalem and the very people who were supposed to be pointing towards me and saying, hallelujah, let us praise Jesus, are the very ones that are going to turn on me and crucify me. But, don't be frightened, I will rise on the third day just as I promised, and then I will go to my Father and prepare a place for, for you. And Thomas, of course, who's always good with a question, is like, what, what are you talking about? Where are you going? We'll go with you. He goes, no, you can't go with me now, but I will go and come back for you. And this same Jesus who spoke and all the galaxies, all the things that keep coming back to us in pictures from the various different telescopes in space. He spoke and all of them were created. Everything that exists. 
he speaks and gives us promises and then shows us time and again in his word how every one of those promises is true. How he's brought about everything that he promised. And so when he tells us, I'm going to prepare a place for you, we're, we're not going on the word of a used car salesman. We're, we're not, well, that'd be nice. I'll cross my fingers and hope real hard that that's what happens. No, he has said it, and he is God, and his word is true, and he is faithful in everything that he says. Do you know that's the reason why God tells us as his people not to lie? He, he doesn't tell us to lie because lying is very bad for you. He says, you're my people. You represent me. What you say, people should be able to take to the bank. I know it's true because one of God's people told it to me, and God does not lie. I just wouldn't lie because my mom would wash my mouth out with soap, and I hated that. He says, I am holy, I am truthful, I am faithful. How dare you impugn my honor, my holiness, by speaking filth that's not true? Oh Lord, forgive us for the ways that we lie when we should be truth-tellers. So Jesus, this Lord, this God, this Yahweh himself, who has promised and all of his promises are true, tells his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will return for you. It is this God with this faithfulness and this truthfulness that we can count on. And he says, our bodies will be transformed. Now, this is one of those things that we have a hard time with. For some reason we often take the spiritual truths of the Bible as just that, only spiritual. That's not how the God of the Bible uses that term. What is spiritual is oftentimes far more real than what we can see or taste or any of those kinds of things. When he talks about our spiritual bodies, our resurrected bodies, he's not saying that they're less than physical or less than our flesh, but more. That when Jesus was risen from the dead, his disciples recognized his body. They saw him and said, well, that's Jesus. He, he had a physical body, but it was glorified. It was resurrected. So there are these bizarre things that, that are recorded in the scripture of how he just seems to walk through walls or locked doors. He's, he's not bounded in the same way that our physical bodies are. And yet, he's able to sit down and eat with his disciples. And he's, he's not, you know, some pixie dust kind of ethereal being. Thomas is able to touch his hands and put his hand in his side. The... the the resurrected body of Jesus is not immaterial. But it is glorious. And it is eternal. And 
what he says here is, is that he will come back for us and transform our bodies to be like his body. Now, before we move on to talk more about what his body is like, I need to spend a little time talking about this phrase where he says that he, he will transform our lowly body. The term there that's translated lowly uh, really means uh, a body of humiliation. And what he's getting at is the fleshly, the sinful part of that. But it's precisely this kind of talk of our lowly bodies or the shame of sin that has led to some bizarre distortions. And that oftentimes people in the world will look at it and say, oh, what? that doesn't help anything. So, for instance, when we, when we talk to our uh, children about things like modesty, the world says, ugh, you guys are so repressed. Like, just get over yourselves. You know, that, that the, the human body is beautiful. And, and so there shouldn't be any shame associated with your, your physical body. Well, like most things with the world, they get it half right. The reality of what the scripture teaches about our physical bodies is both that they are far more sacred than we ever imagine, and at the same time, they are also distorted and marred by sin. We've got both of these truths there in the scripture about our physical bodies in their current state. And it's in this way that he is re uh, referring to our bodies as bodies of humiliation. Bodies with which we are not capable of worshiping God fully as he deserves to be worshiped. And, and so it, it's not something to be shameful like, oh my goodness, but it is to recognize the limitations of our body. And this is compounded in our culture right now today that is like gaga over the human body. Have you noticed this? I mean, it, it's like they, they use the human body to sell everything from cars to dish soap. You know, if, if you use our product, you'll attract, you know, gorgeous models like these, you know. And, and, and we, everywhere we turn, the, the world keeps saying, oh, look, look, look. It's like, you know, especially on the, on the Internet. You know, I have to, to have my wife next to me because I, I, don't, I don't want my eyes to see all the wrong things that, that are there. Don't go to those sites. Don't, don't chase those things. And it's not because sex is bad. No, sex is God's idea. He... He came up with it and gave it to us as a gift, but a gift to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife in a lifelong commitment together. So we, we twist and distort the good things of God. We ought to see our bodies as the physical realities that they are given to us by God that when we go to heaven will not be discarded but rather transformed. We don't get to heaven and, and just become spirits. And that, that idea of an over-spiritualized, Gnostic kind of nonsense has done much damage to the church. 
but rather to see God has given us physical bodies that need transforming. And that Jesus came in a real physical body. He's fully human and fully God together as only he is to redeem our fallen human bodies and minds and hearts and spirits all together. That we in heaven will be whole people with bodies and minds and hearts and spirits but glorious. So that we can talk about what it means to be like him in having a glorious body. Our body needs to be redeemed and made like Christ. He's talked about not only being the resurrected Lord, but the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first among many brothers who will be raised from the dead. That that those of us who are still here when Christ comes back, as we read earlier in Corinthians, we will still be changed. We may not sleep like the brothers and sisters who've gone before us and who've died and who are now asleep awaiting the resurrection, but all of us will be transformed in Christ. All of us who are in Christ will be made like him, glorious. So what is this transformed body like? Two things. One, indestructible. It is eternal. It has conquered death. It is not any longer susceptible to cancer or disease or accident or injury. The, the body, glorious body of Christ is indestructible. But not only is it indestructible, but it's also incorruptible. There is, there is no sin for us in heaven. We're not able to defame God or ourselves by using our bodies in ways that are not true to why our master gave them to us. We are waiting upon this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come from heaven and who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And how is it that Jesus will accomplish this? It says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Again, this is Christ, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh. And Jesus has conquered death, not only for himself, but also for all of his people. All that threatens our immortality, all that brings about our hurt and pain and suffering. You see, when Jesus talks about the reality in heaven, that in heaven there will be no crying, There will be no injustice. There will be no disease. There will be no dying. He's not just talking about you being eternally comfortable. No, it's it's that we will be together with God as God has intended us to be and that we've spent all of human history throwing away, running away from, rebelling against. But all of our best attempts at treason will amount to failure in light of his incredible victory. Because he will make us like him. So, the million dollar question is, are we living today in the certainty of this reality? So a couple things there. First off, how often is this what you preach to yourself when you're facing sin. 
Let me give you an example. So, so you're minding your own business, walking along, doing your daily, daily thing, and then, hmm, some sin comes in sight that you think, well, that'd be fun, right? I might like that, right? And as you consider that sin, normally what we're trained to do is to say, bad. That's a bad thought. That's awful. And if I do it, even though I'd really like to, but if, no, if I do it, I'll get in trouble. So don't do that. Right? Is, have you ever had that conversation? Am I the only one who's had that conversation? All the time, in my head, that's, that's what's going on. And God says, no, there's so much more. That, that when that little tempting thing, ooh, it looks shiny, it looks fun, it looks like it'd meet my needs, it looks whatever, to instead look to Christ. Say, that shiny little piece of rubbish? He's gloriously beautiful. Why, why would I want to turn away from him to go play with some gutter filth? No, Lord Jesus, you're far greater. And not only that, but when you come for me, and you are, Lord Jesus, coming for me, praise you. When you come for me, you will change this body of humiliation. Do you see what's going on? It's not, oh, you're a shameful bad body. It's this body that still struggles with such idiocy. That this lowly body, you will transform. You will make like your glorious body. Oh, Savior, make it so. This is why engaged people, right, are constantly counting down how many days until the big event. When I get to be with my beloved. Is that the way that we think? How many days? Lord, I don't know the number. But make it soon. Oh Lord, please make it soon. I want to be with you. I want to be like you. I want for us, together in glory, to share what you have always intended for us as your people to share with you. This is what this text is getting at. He's writing to real live human beings in the church in Philippi who are struggling with sin. They're being sold a false bill of goods. They're being told by people who hate the grace of the gospel that they've got to work harder for it. And that if they'll be circumcised and if they'll keep the law and if they'll do this and if they'll do that and all of these things, then they might have a chance. And he's saying, no. We have far more than a chance. We have citizenship in heaven from where our Savior is coming back for us. And when he does, he will make us glorious. So what difference does believing these things make in our lives? How specifically should these truths be affecting our daily lives? What about your thoughts and affections? What are the things that you think about? Is Christ at the center of them? Is, is your comfort more important in what you think about than what Christ calls us to? If it is, thoughts are powerful, and when that 
temptation comes offering you comfort instead of the difficulty that following Christ might entail, man, so often we're going to choose comfort. So we need to think differently. That's what he talked about in the previous passage of thinking maturely, thinking according to the scripture. That when false thoughts come to our mind, we reject them and say, that's not true. That's a lie. It's from the pit of hell. I'm not buying it. So instead, I'm going to think God's thoughts after him. I'm going to repeat what is true. Jesus is the Lord. I owe everything to him. And I'm following him all the way to that glorious mansion he's preparing even now for us. Our thoughts and affections, the the affections of our hearts. What are we training ourselves to love? Is it Christ and everything about him? How do we use our body for his glory? What does that mean? How do I how do I not just say, oh well, I've just got to focus on the spiritual? But he's given us physical bodies with which to serve other people, to care for other people, for us to be his hands and feet. How do you treat the physical world around us? Do you see it as what he is ruling and reigning over? Are you seeking to treat it in ways that honor him? Or is it just disposable? And I can, I can use it or abuse it, doesn't matter. Because all of it's going to burn, and, and so we'll get a new heaven and a new earth. No, how I treat my body now, how I treat the world now, demonstrates how I'm looking forward to and longing for that new creation that he's bringing. I can't do anything with that new creation now because he's put me in this creation. And so how I use it demonstrates the way that I'm trusting in him and longing for his new creation. Christ has secured a heavenly citizenship for us and all who are in Christ. We've been given a new home, a new family, an eternal possession that cannot be shaken, taken, or lost. And that's not all. The incredible inheritance that we have in Christ is that we'll receive glorified bodies made perfect to last forever, both indestructible and incorruptible. Jesus is indeed the firstborn of the resurrection, the first fruits of all who will follow after him. And so let us live every day in the certainty of this reality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have given us in our citizenship with you. Thank you that you are the king of this kingdom. Pray that you would help us, lead us, and direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together in response hymn number 542. Who are these like stars appearing?
may be seated. We come now, having heard the word of God preached, to his table, his meal for us as his people. So let me say to all of you, we are thrilled that you're here. If you are here this morning and you are just considering these things, or maybe you're here with family, or this table is something that is just for God's people. And we don't in any way want to make you feel uncomfortable. We just want to be honest with what it is that we're doing. And so if you've got questions about what that means or how to do that, I'd love for you to come and talk with me afterwards, and we'd love to invite you to come and participate in this. But if you're not certain, then just let these things pass by you and use this time instead to pray and ask that the Lord would work in you to help you to understand what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus, thank you for these things of your table, for the bread representing your body, Lord Christ, that was sacrificed for us, for the fruit of the vine that represents your blood shed for us. Lord, we thank you for this table. That's why this feast is often called Eucharist, meaning thanksgiving. It is because we are so thankful that you have died for us, as these elements demonstrate. Having your body beaten, hung on a cross, your blood shed for us. Lord, we praise you and we ask that you would meet with us now. Use our faith that you have given to us in participating in this feast to strengthen us and encourage us to do exactly what we just heard that we ought to be doing in longing for your return and ordering our lives accordingly. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks. We ask that you would now use these ordinary things of bread and juice for your incredible purposes to strengthen your people. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. This time you'll come. Our Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, there in the Passover, took bread, said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the scripture goes on to say, As often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. Please don't miss that. In this feast that Jesus has appointed for his people everywhere, wherever God's people gather, we have this communion meal on whatever regular basis. And in that very meal itself is this same command for us to look forward to, Christ coming again. We eat now because Christ has been gracious to us and has called us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is going to be quite something. And so too is this now as we partake in that future right now in our midst. Praise be to Christ. Amen. There is in the communion plates both regular bread and gluten-free bread in the small cup in the middle. As this is passed, please take these things by faith and hold them until we participate together in eating 
in Christ's name. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he's coming back for us? Then he's given us this feast as a means by which we might be strengthened to continue in that hope. Take and eat. God wanted to be very, very clear about his commitment to us, to rescue us as his people. And so he shed his own blood that we might be made new in Christ. Praise be to God.
Christ's blood shed for us. Take and drink. Let's stand together as we sing Behold the Lamb. Words are in your order of worship. Thank you. 
king has prepared a feast for us that we'll enjoy only by his grace because of what he has done. Now receive this benediction. May the Lord of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated for just a moment. Amen. We'll hope that you can stay for some refreshments through this door and to your left. Now go in peace.